Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. First time in his career that he has faced the Atlanta Braves. Acuna greets him rudely. That ball is gone. Second deck and just like that, it is one to nothing. Kicks and deals. Acuna to left center. Kiss that ball goodbye. Second deck yesterday in Toronto. Second deck today here in Texas. Ronald Acuna out to center field. And he has left the building. And he's now homered in three straight games. That one. He hits this pretty well. Get out of here. Yes. Another homer for Ronald Acuna. He's done it in four straight games. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by MLB.com national content editor, Matt Myers. Today is Thursday, May 18th, 2023. We are going to start by talking about Ronald Acuna's unbelievable start to his season. We're going to get into how the Orioles are actually not that far behind the Rays and then talk about all the incredible things the Rays are doing. We're going to ask the important question of whether Mitch Keller is an ace now. And Matt and I, as you know, we end each show by picking a pair of guys you need to know more about. And I'm going to give you this teaser. One of them is from the Rockies. One of them is from the Oakland A's, because we know how to pick the largest and most successful fan bases that people want to hear more about. Matt, my only prediction for Ronald Acuna today is that he won't hit a home run, and that is only because the Braves have the day off. Otherwise, he has hit four home runs in four straight games. He has hit home runs in five of his last seven games. I'm just going to read for you his line so far. 345. 437, 613. That is an OPS plus of 181. He has 18 stolen bases. Spencer Strider, his teammate, said, he's the best player I've ever seen, which, okay, I like Ronald Acuna. Let's maybe hold it on that in a world where Mike Trout and Shohei Otani exist. And um, Brett McGuire, who is uh, one of our research associates, tweeted out his pace for the season. He's played in every game so far. So his 162-game pace, 41 homers, 68 stolen bases, 151 runs scored, and 11.3 wins above replacement at baseball reference. I don't think I'm going to say he's going to hit those marks, but I am going to say that another year off of the knee injury, not only is he back, he's like the clear front runner for National League MVP, aside from his own teammate, Sean Murphy. And uh, is there anything, I'm not sure how to ask this question. It seems like every night he does something unbelievable. And at what point are you no longer shocked to see, oh, Ronald Lacuna did something cool tonight? Never. I mean, I think he was on the verge of becoming this player a couple of years ago, and then he had the knee injury, and it's like, it, it, I mean, honestly, the thing about the knee injury that was the most, the biggest bummer as like a fan was you thought, oh, is this going to, you know, is he not going to be able to steal bases anymore? Is he not going to be as electric in the field? Like, you know, like, is this just going to hinder him as a player and he will not reach the ceiling we thought he would hit? I mean, I always thought he'd come back and hit, but it's like, not only has he come back and hit, he's improved his approach to the plate. He's, I mean, last year when he first came back, he was kind of moving around the outfield a little funny. It was weird. He was still running base. He was still stealing bases pretty well, but he looked pretty awkward in the outfield. But now he's like back, back and doing everything. And it's like the best version of Acuna that we've ever seen. And it's pretty, 
it's pretty fantastic because players like this don't really come around that often. Like with the the power speed players who are able to kind of like put it all together at once, right? Yeah, he um he kind of ruined a cool stat I was going to give you because he had a home run last night, as he does. And before that, like entering the game, he was slugging better on outside the zone pitches than inside the zone pitches, which is not a thing that people do. Like that's a ridiculous thing. And when I first saw that, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, it must be must be expanding the zone. And no, it's the opposite. He has cut his strikeout rate in basically half from 24% to 14%, which is the second largest decline. And he is doing that while he's added exactly 200 points of slugging percentage from last year, which is like an insane thing to do. And every time he hits one of these home runs, I mean, this is mostly Sarah Langs' beat because she loves these numbers, but they're not just like normal everyday home runs. So he has five homers hit where he's had them uh, at least 440 feet and over 114 miles an hour of exit velocity. He's done that five times this year. The entire rest of the sport has done it nine times. And that's nine guys who've done it once a piece. If you go back to the start of StatCast in 2015 and you look at everybody with at least 100 homers, his home run average distance of 418 feet is number one ahead of Giancarlo Stanton and a couple of guys who have spent time playing for the Rockies. It's really interesting to see like when he hits these home runs, they are majestic bombs. They're not just like, oh, he's in a nice home park. Oh, they snuck over the wall. No, he crushes them in a way that like nobody else does. And you're right. Like a couple years ago, perennial MVP candidate, maybe sort of a little decline. And now if you just look at his like baseball savant page, it is red all over the place. The exception of outfield defense, which I'll get to in a second. But he's not just backpack. He is better than ever on a team that, as we spoke about last week, has some pretty serious starting rotation health issues and sort of needs him to play like that. The thing that's amazing to me about the home run distances is that he's listed at six feet, right? And like all the other guys on that list are like, you know, they're six four, six five, like kind of behemoths. Giancarlo Stanton, CJ Krohn, Joey Gallo, the guys you expect to hit like the massive taters. And here's like, here's um, Ronald Acuna, who is, I mean, he's obviously an incredible athlete, but he's not does not have that kind of size, does not have the physique of a player you'd expect to be atop the leaderboard. Um, uh, that you just that you just mentioned. I have a couple of also Acuna stats. You know, I don't. I, it's always it's fun to kind of get into like the on pace for game or like what could happen. But just like to give a little bit of like the kind of context he's chasing right now. Right now, he currently leads the National League in OPS and stolen bases, which is like totally reasonable. To think he could do both of those things. This is not like a crazy idea that like he could lead the league and lead the National League in both of these. Do you know how many times a player? has led their league, AL or NL, in OPS and stolen bases? Is it zero? Is that why you're asking? No, it's slightly more than okay. zero, but since integration, it has happened three times. Wait, wait, wait. Willie wait, Mays uh, did it twice. Ricky? <laughs> Willie Mays did it twice, and Ricky Henderson did it once. Like, that's like, that is the company he's keeping. Only one time in baseball history has a player led his league in, or I should say, in the since, since the, since the, uh, End of the dead ball era. Only one player has ever led his league in home runs and stolen bases, which will be a little tough for him to do because Alonzo's got a bit of a lead on the NL. Do you know who's the one player since the dead ball era um, to lead his league in home runs and stolen bases? To lead the league in, it's, I'm going to assume it's not one of the two names you just mentioned, right? It's not. Yeah, Eric Davis. I don't know. Mike Trout. No. <laughs> uh, it's Chuck Klein in 1932. Come on. Get yes. out of here, Chuck Klein. Facts. And then uh, prior to in the dead ball era, Ty Cobb did it once, and uh, Jimmy Shecker did it for the 1903 Brooklyn Superbas. And it's funny you mentioned Eric Davis because I actually think that like 
what Acuna is doing now is like the like Eric Davis at his peak was like the like I mean maybe or Barry Bonds for that matter right the, the, you know the two players that have had a 30-50 season in major league history are Barry Bonds and and Eric Davis but like Eric Davis had a run in 1986-1987 and I wanted to mention this cuz like this this is what Acuna reminds me of and um there was a stretch in between 86 and 87, and Joe Posnanski wrote about this on MLB.com a few years ago. So, like, obviously, it's like a cher- it was a hidden season. It was June 11th, 1986 to July 4th, 1987. So, a 162-game stretch where Eric Davis played played in all 162 games, started 152, and he hit 308, 406, 622 with 47 homers, 149 runs scored, 123 RBIs, and 98 stolen bases, getting caught just 12 times. And like, that's like what Acuna, that's almost like what, how I feel like Acuna is playing right now. You mentioned Jimmy Shepard, who I had never heard of before. So while you were talking, I figured I'd look up. I'm wearing a Brooklyn Dodgers hat right now. I, I can't even say we're remembering the, guys. This I, was the Brooklyn Superbas. Even pre, pre, this was like when they were the Superbas. We're we not going to get into like a 40 minute dissertation of Jimmy Shepard's life and career. But two interesting facts. Uh, in 1901, he became the first and so far only player to hit inside the park grand slams in two interesting and ga- two consecutive games, which I find absolutely fascinating. And uh, the other one's just kind of sad. It's about how he passed away. He was hit by a car. Now, that's not interesting or fun. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Acuna's defensive work because I'm getting a lot of questions like, hey, Stackhouse thinks his outfield defense is lousy. And it, it does, kind of. So I think there's um, two things to point out. The first is that at the moment, Stackhouse outs above average does not include value for his throwing arm. And his is phenomenal, right? Like it's 100th percentile in arm strength. There will actually be an update later this season to include that i'm actually looking at a version of it right now he's number one he will get credit for all this stuff the second thing is he's never really been a great defensive outfielder just setting aside throwing arm just fielding right like i feel like the reputation is such that he was because he played center and he probably made some great catches but he's never been great at getting jumps or reads and i remember a couple of plays where fairly or maybe mostly unfairly uh he got criticized for what looked like you know an indifference towards getting to the ball but i've never viewed him as this gold glove caliber fielder again phenomenal arm no doubt about that and i'm wondering you know i don't necessarily buy the stat that says he's like the worst outfielder in the game this year that's probably not true but have you viewed him as like this gold glove guy that some people seem to think he is i honestly have had a hard time getting a read on him over the years because he can do the spectacular but he has often had a tendency to take some kind of weird, funky roots. But, I mean, the throwing arm kind of almost make, makes up for it in my mind because, like, watching him throw is one of the more enjoyable. When he's, like, when he, he, when he lines up those throws and it's like, okay, here it comes, like, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty special. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's – I've never had, like, a, a, great, a great read on, 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 on him as an outfielder. And I also think the last couple of years the injury also kind of, like – you know, made that a little harder to to judge. Wasn't he the guy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm like almost positive I'm right. Very early in the season when the Cardinals had that whole blow up about whether Tyler O'Neill was hustling or not, wasn't Okunye the guy on the other end of that who made the throw? And I remember we looked into it and it's like, this wasn't even one of his best throws. He just had to put it on target. It's not like he like aired it out because he knew he hadn't beat by that much. I'm pretty sure that was him. I kind of liked that too. It's a little bit of a situational awareness, situational awareness of the kind of throw you need to make at that point. So anyway, Ronald Acuna, clearly the MVP front runner and um, interested to see how much of this he keeps up because if he does it's going to end up being something like a historic season a 40 40 40 60 something like that that'll be fun we will take a break and we'll be back on the ballpark dimensions podcast
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We'll move into our three batter minimum where we pick three interesting topics of the week. I picked this one, the first one. Uh, the Orioles are not that far behind the Rays. Our second topic will be about the Rays. We'll get into how great the Rays are. Baltimore has the second best record in baseball right now, and they are second in their own division, which I guess says a lot about the Rays. But, you know, the Orioles were a team that had this sort of out of nowhere unexpected resurgence last year and then had maybe baseball's most disappointing winter aside from i guess the dodgers they didn't really do much they didn't improve the rotation Uh, a lot of people were not thrilled about that and yet here they are they're 28 and 15 they're three and a half games behind the rays at least during the day today and it it hasn't necessarily happened in the way that i thought it would like the rotation hasn't been very good but i thought gunner henderson would be great he hasn't been that great. I worried about the bullpen because they traded Jorge Lopez. Dylan Tate's been hurt all year. Bullpen has been basically the best bullpen in baseball. Their offense has been okay enough. The fielding's been kind of terrible. And yet here they are three and a half behind the Rays. I'm like mostly buying in here, but there's enough downside here. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what I believe. Like Kyle Gibson can't be your number one starter in the playoffs, right? I would think not, um, and I think that the, the starting pitcher pitching on paper is the thing that definitely you you look at and kind of like, you know, gives a little bit of pause. And I mean, you look a little bit under the hood on the record. There's some like you know their run differential compared to the, the Rays is is not that impressive, and the 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 Twins and Rangers, just to name two the two other first place teams in the American League, have a much better run differential than the Orioles do. The one thing the Orioles have done a really good job of, they're they're six and six against the AL East, the tough division, and then they've just like run roughshod over the AL Central and the AL West. They're 17 and six against those two divisions. So that's one thing they're doing right. The thing that stands out to me about them, and it's a little bit of like I think we've talked about this a little bit with the Brewers, of just like not having any bad players in the lineup right now. So if you look at their their top six players by in, in terms of plate appearances all six have a weighted runs created plus above 100. Uh, and that includes Gunnar Henderson, who has that weird like 190, 350 line because he's he's walking a lot. Um, but so their top six guys in terms of plate appearances are above um, 100 weighted, weighted runs created plus, And then eight of their top nine. So basically like every day they are essentially putting out a lineup with n- no bad hitters, right? They don't really have like the superstar hitter, but like it's deceptively like, a really deep lineup. You know, like Cedric Mullins was great two years ago, disappointed last year. He's basically back to where he was two years ago. Austin Hayes is playing really well. Anthony Santander is playing really well. So these aren't like star players, but they're just good major league hitters. And I think that like there's some deception to their lineup that it's like I think better than a lot of people realize just for, for that reason alone. Yeah, the um, the lineup's been really interesting and they, they still have a lot of bases too, right? Fifth in stolen base rate and 41 for 49. Like that's fantastic. The pitching is fascinating. Here's the rotation right now. Kyle Gibson, Dean Kramer, Tyler Wells, Grayson Rodriguez, who's 657 ERA, 
calibrate-ish. The bullpen has been amazing, not just Felix Bautista. It is here I need to take a minute to talk about Yanir Cano, who every year, I guess, uh, in a month into the season, I pitch Matt like, hey, I want to write a story about this bull, this reliever you've never heard of who's had a great year. Because like, there's always these guys. And this year's is Yanir Cano, who has put up some of the most obscene numbers I've ever seen to the point where I don't call them video game numbers because I don't think I could do this in a video game. He is, I swear this is true. He has faced 67 batters. He has allowed five base runners, right? 67 batters, five base runners. That's four hits, one of which went one foot and one hit by pitch. He has 25 strikeouts, zero walks, and zero runs. I wanted to know like what kind of historical relevance a span like that has. So I asked Jason Bernard, our colleague and friend, to help me look this up. And uh, reliable data on this kind of thing goes back to 1974. So it's 67 batters faced. He's allowed five base runners. There's only three guys to ever do better than that. Craig Kimbrell did it once. Koji Uhara did it once. Sean Doolittle did it once. Kimbrell's maybe a Hall of Famer. Doolittle and Uhara were all-star caliber guys for a number of years. This is not something you fake your way into. And without going like too deeply into his entire life and career, he didn't make the opening day roster this year. Like this is the wild part. He was a Twins prospect, uh, kind of a late bloomer out of Cuba. Like had a lot of problems getting out of Cuba, as, as often happens, and couldn't play baseball for a while. Uh, signed with the Twins, just wasn't that impressive. Came up last year, didn't do much for the Twins. Was traded to Baltimore in the incredibly unpopular Jorge Lopez trade. Remember how angry everybody was that they traded away Mancini, traded away Jorge Lopez? Well, this is one of the guys they got back, but it wasn't even good for the twin, for the Orioles last year. So he comes into this season with an 1150 career ERA, which is like one of the worst ever with as many innings as he'd thrown, didn't make the roster. And I read a lot of stories about this basically in spring training after he got torched by the Tigers one day, didn't make it out of his inning. He um, was throwing from like two arm slots, kind of like a higher one and a little more of a three quarters one. He's like, I'm going to stop doing the higher one. I'm going to start doing the three quarters one. Now, all of a sudden, he's got a sinker that drops more than any other sinker in baseball. I'm pretty sure there's some evidence of uh, like, I think they probably changed his grip a little bit. So there's a little bit of a seam shifted wake effect that wasn't there last year. And he throws the change up and he's thrown the change up 89 times. He's allowed zero hits on it. He's got a slider that isn't even that good, but it's like it's there for guys to think about. And it's one of those things where it's like this guy had no track record as of a month ago. Can I really say he's going to be great for the rest of the season? No. But can I say there's real things happening here? Like you don't fake this. This guy is almost last year's Felix Bautista and they still have last year's Felix Bautista. That's pretty good. I look at the Orioles box score every night to be like, oh, did Cano pitch? Yeah. And like every night, it's like, oh, one inning, two strikeouts, no, no base runners. So it's like, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. I think I, you know when, when I when I picked Felix Bautista as my guy a few weeks ago, and I kind of feel like you just snuck in an extra guy right there, which is yeah. cool because I'm I'm all about I'm all about Cano. Um, I said like you know it seems like they the Orioles have like sort of brought over ported over some of this like Astros stuff that like you know Michael Elias and Sid Magdal had built there where they kind of like were able to identify under the radar relievers and turn them into impact relievers and it's like it's those two it's Brian Baker it's a really deep bullpen it's a good team and it feels sustainable because as someone someone pointed out, some someone pointed out on Twitter last night I'm not sure who it was their Triple A team is like running roughshod over the over the international league and like you don't want to put too much stake 
stock into like, oh, the AAA team's record because a lot of teams are not playing to win. But like it's they have some prospects on their team and they're absolutely dominating the, the international. I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I updated those numbers for today. Triple A Norfolk in the International League East has a 30 and 10 record. That's in first place, like fine, whatever. If you were to look at the run differentials of all the teams, there are, let's see, six of the teams have negative run differentials. OK, uh, the Yankees team is plus one. The Rays team is plus one. The Phillies team is plus six. Norfolk is plus 123. <laughs> <laughs> they have scored 275 runs uh, by far the most. They have allowed 152 runs by far the least. And I was like, well, who's, who's down there? What's happening down there? Uh, two very interesting names. Colton Kowser, a 23-year-old outfielder who's their number three prospect, has an OPS over 1,000. Jordan Westberg, their number four prospect, who's a 24-year-old infielder, has an OPS over 1,000. And if you go a little bit further down, 2022's number one overall pick was Jackson Holiday. Yes, that's Matt Holiday's kid if you want to feel absolutely ancient. Jackson Holiday. He's 19 years old. He's played at two levels of A ball this year 391, 511, 696 at 19 years old. Whatever happens to them this year, you'll notice I'm talking mostly about hitters and not about starting pitchers, which is still going to be their issue. Um, they have so much talent coming. So they could trade for a pitcher if they want to, or they could just let their lineup be awesome for years to come. It's kind of fun to watch. Our second topic is also in the American League East. Who's the only team better than the Orioles right now? It's the Rays. That's not exactly a secret, but the thing that's like most interesting to me is what they're doing in far as far as crushing the ball, uh, allowing homers, and also not allowing homers. So if you go back to the beginning of baseball time, I'm excluding 2020 here for all of the obvious reasons. Um, the Rays have a 125 slugging plus. Now you're saying to yourself, what the hell is slugging plus? I've never heard of it. It's basically slugging percentage compared to that year's baseline, kind of like OPS plus. So when I say 125, that means they're out slugging the rest of baseball by 25%. That's the best ever. And who's number two on that list? It's the 1927 Yankees. As as Matt and I have joked uh, kind of offline, whenever you're atop a list and the second team is the 1927 New York Yankees, even if it's only the middle of May, I get it. That's pretty cool. They also have the highest weighted runs created plus of all time. Again, it's mid-May. They are basically doing things on offense that no one has ever done if they kept it up for a full season. Are they going to do that? Probably not. But it's it's far enough into the season where I think you can honestly point in them and go, wow, like this team is for real. And Matt, as you found, not only are they hitting the home runs, they are preventing the home runs. Yeah, and in some ways, it's like the home runs they're hitting are getting all the attention, right? But through 44 games, they've hit 86 homers. Most in baseball, they've only allowed 39 homers. So that's a plus a plus 47 home run differential, which is the best ever through 44 games. Next on the list is the 2003 Yankees and the 2010 Blue Jays, who are plus who were plus 38 um, through 44 games. And of course, I asked our trusty research group, "What is the largest home run differential, positive home run differential in baseball history?" And wouldn't you know it? <laughs> The 1927 Yankees, they hit 158 home runs and allowed 42 home runs. So they had a home run differential of 116. Of course, the Rays, if they kept up this pace, would shatter that record. Of course, if you look at the, the other teams atop, near the top of that list, it does skew more recent with the um, you know a lot of teams hitting more homers than ever. Number two on the list all time is the 2019 Twins, the uh, the legendary Bomba squad. Um, you'll also see the 2010 Blue Jays, 1961 Yankees, another team famous for uh, for hitting home runs with Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle. Point being, um, this Rays team is doing all the things. It's like, oh, 
hitting home runs and not allowing home runs, basically the best things, most basic best things you can do. And they're really good at both of them. They have 12 hitters with at least 80 plate appearances. 11 of them have an OPS plus of 100 or better. The other guy is Manny Margot, who's at 91 and has actually been playing pretty well the last couple weeks. This All this talk made me think of something that you probably missed because um, when you were on vacation a couple weeks ago and we're not on the podcast, I had Adam Barry, our Rays beat writer on, and I asked him a whole bunch of questions about what the Rays were doing at the time. One of the things I said to him was, hey, like Randy Rosarina is having an MVP caliber season. He'd kind of settled into this, like, I'm pretty good, but I've got some rough edges. I give some value back on the bases and on defense. And all of a sudden, he looks like a completely different dude. Like, what's going on there? And he said, uh, he actually started paying attention to the pitchers. Uh, our listeners have heard this, but for your benefit, because I thought it was funny, he said, yeah, before this, he knew who Garrett Cole was and a couple of the Cuban pitchers, and that's basically it. And now he's actually like doing some of the research and looking at the scouting reports and he's, you know, putting a little more emphasis on on preparation. I'm like, yeah, that's super cool. He still has four stolen bases and four caught stealings. I think that part's not going to change, but he's a legitimate MVP candidate. Wander Franco is a legitimate MVP candidate. And then you've just got guys up and down the lineup. Isak Paredes is slugging nearly 500. Harold Ramirez is slugging 554. Taylor Walls, I'm not even going to look up his numbers from last year because they're basically like 100, whatever, um, has a 930 OPS. I don't know how they do it. Where do they like find these guys? That's that's the thing. I know they got pitching problems. We can talk about that. They're just crushing the ball in a park that is not conducive to crushing. I can't believe we got this far talking about the Rays and we didn't even talk about Yandy Diaz. Yes. Um, who was... <laughs> Who was like one of like a, a you know one of our favorite guys in this podcast in the early years, mostly because he he hit the ball really hard, but he just hit it on the ground. Um, so it was like, hmm, if this guy could ever learn how to elevate, there might be something there. As an example, in 2017, his average launch angle was 0.5, 0.5, which is basically like hitting the ball straight down. This year, it is his average launch angle is 10 degrees. And wouldn't you know it, he is also an MVP candidate hitting 321, 429, 593. Um, It's a ferocious ferocious lineup. Yeah, I guess I was going to talk about their pitching injuries, but I don't want to. I want to leave it at this lineup is amazing. They crush the ball. And they're good at other things too. They are fourth best in outs above average, first best in base running runs, the Fangraphs base running metric. They uh, have the highest rate of ground balls turned into outs on defense. Like they're just a very good overall team. All right, our third topic. Yeah, yeah it, it, go ahead. What else? we have more race content. Say, before I was just like as an example, it's like as much as they can slug. Last night against the Mets, they stole seven bases in a game. Like they were the best home running team, and they just happened to have a game where they stole seven bases and they lost. And they lost. <laughs> still, still pretty impressive. Speaking of teams that usually send their best players to Tampa Bay, the Pittsburgh Pirates, Mitch Keller. Might be an ace now. He has two thirty is two thirty eight ERA in nine games. His last five starts, forty four strikeouts and four walks. A one thirty six ERA. It was just about a year ago where he was demoted to the bullpen. And I'm gonna like uh, we'll get back to like what is he doing. I'm wondering, Matt, if you remember what Mitch Keller was best known for like three years ago, like why we talked about him. Do you remember at all? I don't. Okay. He had a deeply... Remind remind me, please. I'm going to. He had a deeply hilarious first two years in the majors because in 2019, he had a 713 ERA, but he had a a FIP, a fielding independent pitching of 319, which is like an all-time huge difference. Like he was wildly overperforming that awful ERA. And the very next year, he had a 291 ERA. And you think, hey, he figured it out. 
but he had a 675 pip. So he was like wildly underperforming, like these insane swings. And as I remember Ben Lindbergh wrote about at the time, uh, he had no idea about any of this. This was the previous Pirates regime. And this is his quote from a, a piece Ben wrote years ago. No one really said anything about it. I think they just want him to go out there and try to learn the game, but nothing really on the side of you're getting a little unlucky. I don't think that would happen today. Like, like it's only been four years and I think the, the game has changed so much. And that's just like the first place I always go to with Mitch Keller is, yeah, the guy whose ERA never actually matched what he was doing under the hood. So what is he doing differently this year? Well, uh, his velocity is way up. It was 93.9 in 2020 and 21. Now it's 95.5. And he has completely changed the way he's pitching. His first couple of years is four seamer, cutter, curve and change. Well, now his four seamer and cutter and sinker and sweeper and curve and change up. What happened was after the 2021 season, he went to Tread Athletics, which is sort of like a driveline-esque pitching facility, and uh, worked on flexibility and all this kind of stuff to improve his velocity. And the same trainer said, hey, uh, you could throw the fastball as hard as you want. It's just not that good. So why don't you learn a sinker? (laughs) As the Athletic reported, Keller hadn't thrown a sinker since he was 10 years old. And now if you look at him against right-handed pitching, uh, in 2020, he was entirely four-seam cutter curveball. Now... He throws the sinker and the sweeper and the cutter more than the four seamer to righties. It is a really cool story. I think that we've had a number of times now where guys saying, I'm going to get better. I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to work out in ways that you wouldn't have 10 years ago. I'm going to change my pitches in ways that you wouldn't have 10 years ago. Sometimes I wish we could talk to ourselves from 2013 and say, hey, here are the things that are going to be happening. And it would blow our minds that guys who are generally not successful could just do these things and get good. It's wild. It's I mean, he's like the rare kind of like there's you hear like, you know, post hype sleepers for prospects. He's like the post, 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 post hype sleeper. I mean, this guy's been on the prospect. He was a second round pick in 2014. He was prior to 2017. Our prospect rankings ranked him number 48, the number 48 prospect um, in all of baseball. And he stayed in the top 40 for four years. And that was through 2020. He was like still considered like a top 40 prospect, one of the best pitching prospects in the game. As you noted, he had this like huge gap between his actual and expected performances. And it was kind of like, ah, he's just you kind of chalk it up. He's never going to figure it out. So it's cool. It's cool to 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 see him see him figure it out and have success. And, you know, the Pirates have kind of come down, back to earth a bit. But he's I think I, I mean, I, I wish I had the stat handy. There was like some stat I saw recently where like in there, like there was like a two weeks, two or three weeks stretch where like they only won games that Mitch Keller started or something like that. It's that uh, uh, he's been he's been their saving grace on the mound. They have let's see one. Here's a stat for you. They have won three games in May so far, but every single one of those games was a shutout. I don't know that he actually started all of them. I don't think he did. That means they have not won a game where they have allowed a run since April 29th. Does that mean anything whatsoever? Of course it doesn't, but it's just kind of a hilarious fun fact. I like to think that you and I played a bit of a part in this by diving into the Pirates like three weeks ago, coming away with the idea that we didn't actually believe in them, and then they've fallen apart since. So that's either a credit to us uh, or it's entirely our fault. I'm not I'm not sure which. I feel a lot better about the Pirates going forward if Mitch Keller is for real, I guess is, is the way I would say it. Like if he's really a number, I want to say one, but at least like a number two, uh, I, I feel a lot better about him. He's still pretty young. He's only 27, I think. I guess that's young. Yeah, he's, it feels like he's been around forever, as I said, but I guess 27, considering all that, like who knows what's next, but uh, good for him. We'll take a break and we'll come back with a pair of guys you need to know a little bit more about.
We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. At the end of each show, Matt and I like to pick a couple of under-the-radar guys you should know a little bit about. I find it extremely interesting that my guy is a Rocky, and he's one of three different Rockies I considered talking about. I consider talking about Riley Pint, who finally made it up to the majors. I consider talking about Brenton Doyle, who might actually be giving them a great defensive center fielder that they've needed since basically the dawn of time. But no, I'm going with 32-year-old catcher Elias Diaz who's having a shockingly great season. He's hitting 331, 384, 460, uh, factoring in the park and everything. That's a 118 OPS plus. But he's also had a pretty good year behind the plate. If you look at the new StatCast metric, uh, caught stealing above average, which takes into account like the leads and the speed of the base runners and all this, he's currently number one. He is the best uh, catcher in baseball right now at preventing caught stealing. Two years ago, he was fourth best in catcher blocking. He's never been a good framer, so he's been a big knock against him. But for a guy who's 32 years old and providing value behind the plate and next to the plate, considering his history, it's really interesting how he got there. From 2015 through last season for Pittsburgh and Colorado, 243, 298, 383. You'll be unsurprised to know that he's hitting much better at home than on the road this year. No, I don't suddenly think he's the best hitting catcher in baseball. His history is kind of fascinating. He signed with the Pirates as an international free agent out of Venezuela way back in 2008. Slowly worked his way up, got into two games with the Pirates in 2015, one in 2016. He's also overcome some really you know, dramatic personal issues. In 2018, in spring training, his mother was actually kidnapped in Venezuela. Fortunately, three days later, rescued unharmed. Uh, Adam Barry, who was at the time our Pirates beat reporter, talked to him, and this is what he said. Uh, Coming from a country where we experienced devastation the way my mom has, just so much heartbreak in my country, it reminds you that this is all worth fighting for and that I'm a very blessed person to be able to be here. He actually ended up having a great year that year. 116 OPS plus for the Pirates. Uh, not so great after that. He got non-tendered after 2019, signed as a non-roster invite with the Rockies before 2020, where he also didn't have a good year. But he had a pretty decent 21, and he got a three-year contract extension. And now he's one of the better catchers in the league, at least so far early in the season. And I was thinking about this. The Rockies are going to need an all-star representative. And you look at their team, right? Chris Bryant's not having a great year. Herman Marquez is hurt. CJ Crone is hurt. Uh, Daniel Bard is barely pitched. Ryan McMahon's been kind of lousy this year. Is it going to be Elias Diaz? Now, catcher in the National League is tough. Sean Murphy is a slam dunk. JT Romuto is probably the reigning best catcher in baseball. Will Smith's had a great year for the Dodgers. But if not Elias Diaz, who? Kyle Freeland? I don't know. Maybe after all these years, the Rockies will finally get their first all-star catcher. And now I've talked about Elias Diaz. I always like how your mind goes there. I feel like a couple of years ago, you had a similar thing about Chris Davis with a C for the Orioles when the Orioles were terrible. That was, you. He was the only that guy. That was your idea. You said... <laughs> No, I think you you mentioned it to you mentioned it to me, and then I made you write about it because I was like, "Oh, this is a fun idea." Maybe so. Like you're the one who brought it up. <laughs> but um, I mean, I'm not sure Kyle Freeland's going to maintain a 3.16 ERA. That's just really hard to do pitching half your games in Coors Field. But I would have to say I think Kyle Freeland is the clear leader in the clubhouse. Um, and park effects or not, I feel like if Chris Bryant is hitting where any hitting anywhere close to 300, he would then be the be the be the be the second choice but hey you never know it would be a cool it would be a cool story if diaz ended up being the guy as mike teased earlier and i know you all you listeners have been waiting around to hear which oakland a's player i'm going to talk about um a few weeks ago uh mike you know talked about brent rooker in this space and i i went for someone who's 
not having quite the same year, but it's having a very interesting year, and that is their first baseman, Ryan Noda. Ryan Noda made the news this week. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw the play. If you did not, you should go see it, where basically he was playing first base. The ball ricocheted the foul territory, and he went and scooped it up and threw it between his legs to the pitcher covering first base to get the out. It was pretty spectacular. It brought back memories of Mark Burley doing that on opening day like you know a dozen years ago or something. So that was pretty spectacular. But like... He's actually having a really like interesting slash pretty good year. I mean, he's like, I mean, I said, I, th- I think I said this about Brent Rooker, you know, and I'll say it again about Ryan Noda. Like back in like the Moneyball days of like the A's, their their prime, you know, those like they they were like lousy with guys like Ryan, <laughs> like uh, Ryan Noda. You know, your your Scott Hatterbergs, your Matt Stairs, your John Jahas, your I'm 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 sure I'm sure there's many many I'm forgetting, but I think you get the idea. Um, lots of walks, lots of strikeouts, some power. He's hitting 215, 400, 421, 100th percentile in walk rate, seventh percentile in K rate. But what I find interesting is that when he does make contact, he does seem to hit the ball in the in the sweet spot. According to our sweet spot percentage on Baseball Savant, his 45% sweet spot percentage is in the top 10 of all qualified hitters. He's basically tied with Luis Arise, um, which I think is cool because like, you could not think of like more different hitters um, than, than these two guys. Um, What's also interesting about him is that Noda was came to the he was originally drafted by the Blue Jays, traded to the Dodgers um, in the Ross Stripling deal, and then he was selected in the Rule Five draft this year. For those who are unfamiliar with the Rule Five draft, it's basically a mechanism for players who've been who are not added to the forty man roster after a certain amount of years. They have a draft of all these players every year during the winter meetings, and then the team that takes them has to keep them on their roster the entire season the following year, or offer them back to the team they took them from. It's usually a mechanism for relief pitchers, occasionally starters, to get a chance at the new team. It's hardly ever, you know, there's some famous cases like, you know, Josh Hamilton and Dan Ugla come to mind. But, like, it's hardly ever hitters who, like, get taken in the Rule 5 draft and stick with their new team. Of course, if you're eligible for the Rule 5 draft and you're a hitter and the A's take you, you're thinking, like, well, actually, this is going to be a really good chance for me because it's a team that really, really could use some hitters. Um and he, he's stuck so far, as I said, with the 400 OBP. What's also interesting, and this kind of speaks to, you know, what makes the Dodgers so special as an organization, of the 15 players taken in the Rule 5 draft last year, three of them were Dodgers. The other two were Jose Hernandez, um, left-handed pitcher taken by the Pirates, and Gus Varland, a right-handed pitcher taken by the Brewers. It really just goes to show how much, like, extraneous talent the Dodgers have that they cannot put on their 40-man roster that other teams are, like, dying to get their hands on. Um, just another kind of subtle way we don't think about that, like, what makes the Dodgers as good as they are and why they're still dominating their division, even though, you know, they let, like, six great free agents walk over the last two seasons. So that's my guy for the week, Ryan Note of the A's. Which Oakland A will you pick two weeks from now? Is it going to be <laughs> J.J. Blade? Is it going to be Estrella Ruiz? Who are we going to get to next? Reeves, you know, he does have more hit by pitches than walks this year, and he leads the league in steals, so that is pretty interesting. But I may have to put a moratorium, uh, moratorium on A's um, at least for at least for for the month of May. Yes, we we cannot have more guys selected than A's team wins, and we're coming dangerously close to that. Uh, a year ago, just about exactly a year ago today, Cincinnati baseball. So that's where he went. University of Cincinnati tweeted on this date in 2017. Ryan Noda became just the second Bearcat to hit a home run onto the roof of Fifth Third Arena, and the video is there. And 
to say it's a tank does not even begin to describe it. Like the, the camera cannot come close to finding the ball and metal bat, obviously, and all that. But still, that is like real power. That's my other my other Ryan Noter tidbit. Actually, I, that, I'm glad you mentioned that. Went to the University of Cincinnati, also the alma mater of uh, Kevin Euclid. And I mentioned the Moneyball A's. In the book Moneyball, Kevin Euclid is mentioned as a player that like Billy Bean loved because he referred to him as the Greek god of walks. So it all it all comes back to the Bearcats. And now Kevin Euclid refers to himself on Twitter as the Greek god of hops because he's a beer brewer. Everything is a circle. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.